0: and Loyal readers and listeners, welcome today to 2021, fourth of the Bible in one year segment. So, if you will remember, in case you have forgotten, excuse me, what you should have read for day 221, here's a brief a reminder of it you should have read Ezra chapter 8 verse 21 through chapter 9 verse 15 first corinthians chapter 5 psalm 31 1 through 8 in proverbs 21 1 through two so our focus for day 221 is going to be on acts chapter 17. Verses 1 through 15. So, in case you have forgotten what had happened prior to this, we had just seen Paul and Silas receive the harshest treatment that one could possibly receive at the hands of the authorities. So, what had happened, they had been beaten, Right, so on sixteen, they've been beaten, they've been thrown in prison, they've been placed <coughs> in stocks. In other words, their feet had been bound together and placed in wooden boards, so they could not move. But none of that stopped them from continuing on with their God-given mission, and that's what we're gonna see. Today, we're going to see Paul and Silas move into two more cities, or more specifically two more Macedonian cities, so we're going to see them move into Thessalonica, and we're going to see them move into Berea. <coughs> so now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and we're going to take it through verse 9. So here's what that says. (coughs) So when Paul and his companions had passed through Phileas and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king One called Jesus. (coughs) When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So what is happening here? So what are we seeing here? We're seeing Paul reasoning in the synagogue in this city called Thessalonica for three consecutive Sabbaths. And what he is teaching in these three consecutive Sabbaths in this synagogue in Thessalonica is he is teaching that Jesus is the Christ. <coughs> so in Paul's letter that we know as First Thessalonians, he suggests that the in this area, right? This area was far longer than just three weeks, but there's no really any evidence to prove that, nor is there any evidence to disprove that. So in the uh, the suggestion comes from First Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine, right? So the Three Wings may have been how long he was welcome in the synagogue. But again, there's no evidence to prove that. There's no evidence to disprove that. <laughs> understand that, right? So then what we see is, we see the converts here in Thessalonica came from Greek god-fearers. In other words, they, they it came from those people living in Thessalonica who were not ethnically Jewish, but who were ethnically Greek or ethnically who Gen- would have been called and known as God Fearers. And so it also came from, it also came from prominent women within the area. But uh, what we can also see here is that out of jealousy, right? So, the Jews were jealous, these people that thought they had a soul right to God became jealous. And so these people that became jealous went out and hired some street criminals to attack the team, but it didn't do any good, right? now we meet this man by the name of Jason who was evidently one of the converts that we see mentioned over in Acts chapter 17 verse 4. So he's one of the many converts that we saw. And so what we see here also in this passage is we see that this charge against the missionaries was different the one they were charged with in Philippi, in Philippi, they were charged with with essentially starting a new religion. They were charged with teaching things that were contrary to the Roman law, right? However, here in Thessalonica, the charge was sedition. So, what a sedition means? Sedition means they were saying that somebody else was king, somebody else was in charge, that is what sedition is, right, so we need to understand about that, right, we need to understand about what's going on here, right, so in the Western Roman Empire, right, there was this historical idea, this, they, they tested his this idea of a king, I mean, they didn't want a king, they didn't like kings. Kings in the Western Roman Empire were tyrannical, and they didn't like people to be tyrannical. When we see that when, we, when you read the play Julius Caesar, and you know anything about the history of Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar essentially wanted to be made king. Yes, just- had been appointed by the Roman Senate to govern the Roman Empire. So the so this charge was was false, was kind of sort of what they were saying here was they were saying that There should have been another king in place of, or in spite of, the, um, Roman Caesar. Here's what that charge was actually saying, right? So this... Charge was grave. it was grave. They're making this big grave charge. And so now what we're going to see, right? So we're gonna see right now that they made this man Jason, who was Paul's friend, put up surety, put up a security bond that Paul and his friends we're gonna all leave Thessalonica and probably not ever return. Right? They wanted them to leave quietly, they wanted them to leave peacefully, and they wanted them to not ever come back because they were upsetting the apple cart and they didn't like the apple. What we're going to see when we move into this next section. We're going to see that they leave Thessalonica and they move on into an area known as Berea. So that's what we're going to pick up in in Acts 17 verse 10 and we're going to take it through verse 15. Which says this, as soon as it was night the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and examined the scriptures every day, to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of pre- prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So what's happening here? So what happened here was that we see the missionaries evidently agreed to be sent off. Though, although it was not so much an act of personal protection, or personal safety, right? It was an act of protection for the believers still in Thessalonica. So, in in God's providence, in other words, in God's divine hate, in God's divine will, and in God's divine favor, right? It's in the departure from Thessalonica, led to a new and fruitful field of service which was in this town or city of Berea which was located about 25 miles inland from the major road and was probably chosen as their place to go because of it's isolation In other words, nobody really went to Berea Unless they absolutely, positively, had to Right? So then we see, it says the Berean Jews Were of more noble character, right? And so they were more noble Right? Not simply because they can in, right, Because they searched the scriptures for the truth. Because you see, the Jews in Thessalonica didn't care what the scriptures said. All they cared about was the fact that Paul and Silas and, and his c- other companions were stepping on their toes, and they wanted them to shut up and hung. all the Jews and Berea, those people in Berea, look at the scriptures that these dude's right, so maybe we better ought to listen to him, rather than just running him off. So, in other words, what happened was because they searched the scriptures, many of these people ended up believing. But, unfortunately, the Jews, that's not like a soon found Paul, and the others, and they created a riot, right? They started a riot, kind of like what we're going to see when we get over into 19, over in Ephesus, right? A riot starts, because all these people started to convert to... Christianity. We then see, we then see that Paul is escorted to the coast, and so it's unclear here in the scriptures whether or not Paul traveled to Athens by sea or by land. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Paul ends up in Athens, and that's where we're going to pick up when next we are together with Paul being most important Greek city of Athens. So in order for you to be prepared for that, here's what you need to read. So you need to read Ezra chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Psalm 31, 9 through 18, and Proverbs 21, verse 3. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 222 of Arthur the Bible in One Year segment. So in case you have forgotten what you need to read to be prepared for this discussion, here's what you need to have read. You need to have read as chapter 10. Corinthians chapter 6 Psalm 31 9-18 through 18, and you need to have read Proverbs 21 verse 3 so we're going to still be in Acts chapter 17 but this time we're going to pick up you know, verse 16 and take it through verse 30 so what we have seen so far in Paul's second missionary Anyway, we have seen Paul be run out of Philippi only after being beaten and jailed illegally. We have seen him be run out of Thessalonica only after his friend Jason had to pay the people of Thessalonica a surety or a bond, whichever term you want to use to describe it, that guaranteed that Paul would leave. We have. Seen out of Berea by this same group of people and so now what we're finally gonna see is we're gonna see Paul, excuse me, we saw Paul run out of Berea and then we saw him make a journey to Athens, the scene of classical We're gonna see Paul in Athens, so we're gonna pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and we're gonna go go to, through the first two verses for right now, which is verses 16 and 17, which says this while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, see that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. As well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So, what is happening here, right? So, we do know that at this point in time, Athens was even known by the pagans, in other words, those who worshipped many gods, those who did not worship the one true God, is being overrun by idols. Right. So how do we know this? So we know this because one historian, Pliny the Younger, estimated that there were no fewer been 73,000 idols in the city of Athens. That's a lot of idols. That's a lot of carved images of God that were in the city of Athens. So, given that estimate, thousand carved images of false gods within the city of Athens, calling the city of Athens Seems a little bit like an understatement, right? So what we see here is we see that we give this really broad description of Paul's emotion, right? Because it says that Paul was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed. So he does this likely to encapsulate feelings would have been the fact that he feels anger because Athens is full of idols, he feels grief because Athens is full of idols. He feels concern because Athens is full of idols. Could, so it could be all of those combined. More than likely it'd be a lot of those combined. Or it could be he feels each one of those emotions separate. that the text again describes Paul as going uh, into the oh, excuse me, god, reasoning on the Sabbath day, right? Reasoning on the Sabbath in the synagogue, right. uh, tch, 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 tch. It says he reasoned in the synagogue, both Jews and god and so he went the on the Sabbath, and then it also says that he went into the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there so he goes to the synagogue first and he maybe he maybe they listened to maybe they didn't but he also went day after day to the uh, marketplace which would be the place where the vast majority of the greek people would have gathered on a day-to-day basis and does that so that he could teach there so now let's pick up in verse 18 through verse 21, which says this, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him, some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say, others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the Resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Ergo Pegas, where they said to him, May hey, we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent the Time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So what we just saw here is saw that Paul has to deal with two different phil- philosophical schools, two different schools of philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, so he has to deal with the Epicurean and Stoic schools, and so both of these schools were founded around 800 BC, but they were in stark contrast to each other. As you see, the Epicureans devour the ...valued, excuse me, religion, they thought the gods were uninterested in humanity, and they thought pleasure as the highest goal of humanity. So they would be kind of like hedonists, so they would, they thought that pleasure, having fun, was the ultimate goal of humanity. The Stoics, on the other hand, right? They considered the gods more imminent. Em- they sought consistency on a rational basis, and they valued self-sufficiency. So you get these two different philosophical schools that Paul is having to. Dealing. But they both denigrated Paul as an arrogant show-off, right? So in other words, what's going on here? Why are we bringing this up? Because what's so important about this, right, is that when an opponent can only must a name-calling. In other words, when an opponent can only, uh, make a personal attack against you as a defense right it does not demonstrate intellectual superiority so we also saw at the very end of this right and it says um and we know uh says in verse 19 they took him and brought him to a meeting of the they were paying us When they said to him, maybe we know what this new teaching is That you are presenting You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears We would like to know What they mean In verse 21 it says, "This all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there Spent their time doing nothing But talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So these two groups, the, the, the two groups of philosophers, the two philosophical schools, thought Paul was just being crazy. However, other people thought he was introducing new and strange religious ideas, and because the Athenians love to talk about and debate new ideas they kind of sort of went along with him and they wanted to hear a little bit more about them so now let's pick up in verse 22 and take it to verse 23. so here's what that says it says Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Eropagus, and said people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you Ooh, it's like stuff right there, right? So what we're about ready to see, we're about ready to see Paul's speech Which is what he says, Paul's speech, Paul's sermon, Paul's message is an excellent model for cross-cultural communication of the gospel Because, you see, he does not lead off with a resounding denunciation of idolatry, which would have been how we probably would have started this with a resounding denunciation of the fact that you're worshiping man-made gods that are made out of wood and stone and they're not worshiping the one true god who wasn't even made out of wood and stone and who doesn't exist in things made out of wood and stone. So he doesn't he doesn't start with a resounding denunciation of idolatry. Instead he mentions the people excuse me, he mentions he mentions the people's altar to an unknown God. that's what it says here. It says uh, in verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to prove. Calling... To... You... So he then Goes on to tell them right? And we're gonna Get over into verse 24 So verses 24-29 Paul is gonna make this case And he's gonna make it really really good He's gonna tell them Who this unknown God is He's gonna tell them This unknown God is the one true God they have set up an altar to worship. They just didn't realize that they were setting up and worshipping an altar to the one true God. So let's talk a little bit about who this unknown God may or may not have been. We don't know who it may or may be the god this was supposed to be an altar to, right? So there have been no remains discovered of an altar to an unknown god in the city of Athens, right? But Greco-Roman literature outside of the Bible makes frequent reference to such an altar. So such an altar likely exists. We just haven't found any evidence of it yet. But it more than likely exists because of the Greeks and the Romans both wrote about it. If Greco Roman literature wrote about it. And it's not just found talked about in the Bible. It's found talked about by the Greeks and the Romans. Then it really did exist. It's not something that we just made up. Paul is essentially here exposing the people's inconsistency between seeking a transcendent reality and the use of idols and temples. So now let's pick up in verse 24 and take it on down to verse 29. So here's what this section says. It says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, whether he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So, what's going on here? What is going on here? What is Paul saying here? So, what's the whole point of this? (coughs) So, Paul switches three movements or three ideas about identifying the unknown God. So, the first movement concerns who God is. It echoes Isaiah 42. Verse 5. So Isaiah 42. Verse 5. Says this. This is what the Lord says. The creator of the heavens. Who stretches them out. Spreads out the earth. With all that springs from it. Who gives a breath. To its people. And life. To those who walk on it gives life to those who walk on it, right? So what is Paul saying here, right? He's saying the one true God is transcendent. In other words, he does not live in temples built by human hands, nor does he need the services of human beings, for he is the very source of life. So that's the first one, he's saying God is transcendent. So the second the second idea that he talks about is he describes what God desires from human beings, right? As he says, God is the creator of all humans who have descended through one man. In other words, the distribution of humanity was a determination of God, not a determination of ourselves. We didn't decide how. thirty two verse eight which says this when the most high gave the nations their inheritance when he divided all mankind he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel So Paul here is asserting that this nation that the. is so people will seek God and find him. So we see that Paul can test several pagan ideas. So what are these pagan ideas that he can test? Right? So the first one is that the Athenians believe in their own creation Sep- And that God is not distant, God is not uninterested, God is very close to us, God is very interested in us. Because he has determined the place where you're going to live, the place where you are living, and the place where you have lived he has made all of that determination before you were ever born, right, and he has a plan, and he's gonna help work that plan out through you, right, so verse 28, that's the verse, him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said we are. There's two quotations that could be from The first comes from Job, but it could also come. from Arataeusole. So both of these quotations are from the Greeks, right? And taken from the Greek are talking about Zeus. They're talking about the chief god in the Greek pantheon, Zeus. But Paul here takes them and he applies them to the unknown for the ABANDONMENT of IDOLATRY So now we come to the third and final movement which draws the conclusion by creation because God created you you are God's child ultimately you have a choice of whether or not you want to live as God's child or run away from God and live apart from him but because God created you He is above; and he is beyond his creation, but yet at the same time, he is interested in his. that by sending his son to die for us. In other words, he is transcendent. So now let's pick up in verse 30 and take it to the conclusion, which is going to see the actual end to Paul's message, which says this. In the past, God overlooked In past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the Resurrection of the Dead, some of them sneered. While well, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demerius, and a number of others. So what's happening here, right? So Paul concludes this great message that he started off by laying out for them point by point that God is not like the pagan gods they worship. God cares for them deeply. God is not distant from them. So he finishes this message where he has laid all of this out by calling his listeners, calling those people who have listened to him to repentance. Right. So he then goes on to tell them that God is going to judge all humanity. He's going to judge every single human being that water on the face of the earth, so that they, so this, means they should then repent of their idolatry, uh, right? So we need to understand here what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that yes, the gospel does declare that there is an immense value to all human beings. It has immense value for all humans. but also declares the systematic problem of humanity's sinfulness. So, what we see here at the very end, we see that some of these listeners scoffed at this notion, right? That somebody could be resurrected up from the dead. The Greek philosophy, Greek culture, everything that had to do with who the Greeks are, right? Had no, had little context with the CONCEPT of resurrect- resurrection. So, a really resurrection, somebody cries up out of the grave bodily. Now, we're not, we're not talking about they They would've understood if we would've said, Oh, yes, the body dies. But the, what makes the person goes on to live. And afterlife. they would've believed it. It. But when you say that the body is going to physically come up out of the grave and be resurrected, would have had a problem with that, because there was nothing in their mythology that talked about that, there was nothing in their philosophy that talked about that, there was nothing in their that talked about that. it. it would have been utter f- foolishness for people, for some of these people, but for those who had a more open mind, what happened here, because among those who had a more open mind, you do see them being saved, and included this person by the name of Dionysus, right, who was a member of the Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be prepared for that discussion. Here's what you need to read. So you need to read Nehemiah chapter one verse one through chapter three verse fourteen. You need to read first Corinthians chapter seven verses one through twenty-four. Psalm thirty-one nineteen through twenty-four. And Proverbs twenty-one verse four. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 223 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So just a reminder of what you should have read to be prepared for this discussion, you should have read Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 14. You should have read First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. You should have read Psalm 31, 19 through 24. And you should have read Proverbs 21, verse 4. So we're going to now be moving into Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 17. So what we saw yesterday was we saw Paul in Athens, which was historically the most important city in Greece. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see Paul moving from Athens into Corinth, right? So we know a good deal about the events that took place in Corinth during Paul's initial trip, and we know a good deal about this group of converts' struggles because Paul wrote two letters to them that we know of, right, and those two letters are what we call the two books of Corinthians. So we have First Corinthians, and we have Second Corinthians, so those are the two letters that we know that Paul wrote to them. He may have written that to them a third time. We just don't have any documented evidence of that. So now we're gonna pick up in verse eighteen uh, excuse me, chapter eighteen, verse one, and we're gonna go through verse four. Here's what this says. It says after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy, his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Corinth was the heavily, heavily populated Roman capital of Acacia, which is Greece, and it lay 53 miles or 85 kilometers, whichever measurement of distance you prefer to use, it lay 53 miles or 85 kilometers to Athens, west, and so because the southern coast of Greece is so dangerous for ships, right? The sea trade between Italy and the prosperous Roman Roman province of Asia, right, which would have been the f- farthest west in Asiatic Turkey that you can get, right? So bear that in mind that's the Roman province of Asia that we're talking about, right? So this the century between Italy and the Roman province of Asia, right? Passed through the isthmus of Corinth. So everything that went from Asia to Rome came through Corinth, right, and everything that went from Rome to Asia came through Corinth. So, which made Corinth extremely wealthy. So, we know that Rome decimated the old city of Corinth in about 146, being seen, and it wasn't reestablished as a Roman colony until about 44. B, C. so although some greeks did continue to live there in the interim and many greeks did r- remain in corinth in paul's day f- full citizens of corinth were roman citizens and because they were roman citizens and because it was a full-fledged Roman colony, Latin was the official language of civil government, of civic business. So, in other words, what Corinth was, was Corinth was the best preparation possible for any future ministry of Paul in Rome or the Western Mediterranean. So, now we understand where this is taking place. Now we understand why Corinth was so important. Now, let's deal with the man whose name is having ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and that would be the Emperor Claudius. So, let's deal with him. So, we know that Claudius was the Emperor of Rome from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. And we know that he dealt firmly with Rome's and Jewish community at various times. And we you know that he expelled them from the city of Rome, probably in A.D. 49, which would have been shortly, very shortly, before Paul reached Corinth. So what exactly provoked this explosion bullshit order, what caused Claudius to order all the Jews to be expelled from Rome, so what caused that, right, so all of this came about because of a conflict in the Jewish community over one who was called Christus, 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 so usually thought to be it's about Jesus as the Christ because you see that word sounds really similar to the word for Messiah or a known word in Greek, which is Christos, Christos. See the difference? See the similarities? Christus. Christos, Similarities then, so we're probably talking about, right, this debate between about the deity, about Jesus as being the Christ, Jesus as being the Messiah, that would have gone on among the Roman Jews. So, more than likely, Jewish-Roman citizens probably would not have left, probably would not have left. They may have left simply to get out of the line of fire, but we don't know for sure if they would have left or not. And probably many others would have also remained, but we don't know for sure. Given the controversy, however, leaders of the Jewish movement, leaders of Christianity, are probably among those forced tongues, which would probably include, right, this man by the name of Aquila, and his wife Priscilla, so they would have more than likely left Rome, because they were Jewish, but because they were also Jewish Christians, and so that would have made them twice as likely to have been forced to leave, so now let's deal with this idea, right, it says, um, so Paul went to see them, because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Right. He stayed and worked with them. So he says that he did that. Why? Because he was a tent maker and they were a tent maker. They were tent makers, right? So people of the same trade often lived and they often ran shops in the same neighborhood with one another. But But most people who were of Jewish descent, most people who were Jewish, lived in Jewish enclaves which were distinct from wider trade connections. So now let's talk about this idea that it says that all was a tent maker. What exactly are we talking about there? So we know that Tarsus, which was the city that Paul came from, was known for its textile industry. But, 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 here's the keyword here, keyword there is but, but many scholars think that this term, tent maker, more often referred generally to leather workers, right, so someone who is working in leather, someone who is making, let's say, leather aprons, who is making leather coverings for things, who might be making leather boots? who might be making whatever it is that they wanted made out of leather to include shelter, and so because of the way because of the tools, because because of the mobility of leatherworking tools, right? It would have been easier for Paul to carry the tools used for in leatherworking with him as he moved from city to city, enabling him to perform his trade wherever he went. Keep that in mind, right? So, now, what is going on here? So now, what's that? Now, let's talk about, so now we understand that he was a tent maker. Priscilla and Aquila were probably also tent makers. They were probably also leather workers, right? And then it says, what does it say? He stayed and worked with them stayed and worked with them right so now let's talk about this stayed and worked with him so he stayed with him so he hospitality they extended him hospitality right so let's talk about for how long this stay would have lasted so we all know the importance of hospitality in antiquity we've already seen them over and over and over again but in s- but despite the this, right, guests were really welcomed for more than three weeks, right, rarely welcomed for more than three weeks, however, the working arrangement that we see here differs, differs from usual hospitality, because you see, many workers lived in, Menzanine or other apartments attached to their ground floor shops. So in other words, the shops would have had a ground floor. Their, their, their place's business would have had a ground floor, right? That's where their shops would have been. That's where they would have done their business. And then there would have been a second level, or a first floor, as the Europeans would call it, right? So they had have a ground floor, and a first floor, or sometimes also referred to as a menzanine, right? The, uh, which is the term we just used, so they would have worked on the ground floor, and they would have lived on the first floor, on the mezzanine floor. That's what we're talking about here, right? <coughs> so, we need to also understand, right, so it says that uh, Priscilla and Aquila, right, it says it is a wife. So, Priscilla, which would have been Aquila's wife, right? It's also working as an artisan or someone alongside her husband, right? So, now, we need on the, now let's talk a little bit about the way other people view these types of people, which is part of the reason why people often so often look down on Paul, right? As you saw, because even though artisans were often proud of their work, people of status, in other words, people who were important, people who held important positions, quite often looked down or despised those that did manual labor, that made things with their hands, and we most Gentile sages, those who spoke words of wisdom, those who taught in the Gentile world, often avoided working with their hands, It was not so much the case when you moved over into the Jewish world, where you would see Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis, working with their hands as they taught, right? So what we're saying is that some Jewish teachers in this period had another trade besides teaching, which they often learned from their fathers, which is what Paul did. Palm more than likely learned leather working from his daddy. And so when he wasn't teaching, he was working leather as a means of making a living so that he could be a productive member of society. Key point there a little bit about what's happening here what had happened in Corinth. remember we said earlier right that the romans had decimated decimated old Corinth in about 146 bc right they had they went and it was about another a hundred years or so before they reestablished it as a roman colony right so, the man that rebuilt as oh, a Roman colony was a man by the name of Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony, right? And so, in Paul's day, right, which would have been probably about another hundred years or so after Julius Caesar established as a Roman colony again, right? Corinth would have been a major center of commerce, culture, and entertainment. So it would have been something like New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all in one place. Imagine that. So you got your center of commerce, right? Which would have been New York. You got your center of culture, which would have been Los Angeles and New York which would have been Los Angeles and Las Vegas, hmm, all rolled up into one. So you got the gambling maker, the casino mecca. you got the heart of the financials, which is New York, you got the heart of the movie business, which is Los Angeles, and they're all in one place. <coughs> they're all in one so we know that Priscilla and Aquila were forced from Rome to Corinth, and Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome that came about because of... um, ...that arose when the Gospel of Christ was preached in Rome. So we know that Paul stayed in Corinth, and he worked as a tent maker. And we also know that the word tent maker was widely used for a leather worker. And that it suggests that the trade was more than making shelters, though it certainly did include that. And we know that Paul would later go on to make a point to the Corinthians that he had worked with his hands, so that he would not be a burden on the believers. And that comes from First Corinthians chapter four, verse twelve, and. Chapter nine, verses twelve through eighteen. So now let's pick up verse five and take it on down through verse eight, which says this: When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testa uh, to 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 preaching, testifying to the Jew exclusive to preaching, testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Believed and were baptized. So we now we, now we see that Paul's gone to Corinth, Paul has preached in Corinth, and Paul has had a great effect in Corinth, so far, right? So, now we see Silas and Timothy finally catch up to Paul, and we see see that they bring him news, right? And it's this news that upon a letter that we now call 1st Thessalonians. We're going to deal with the origins of that letter letter when we get to the book of 1st Thessalonians. They also brought a gift from the Macedonians that allowed Paul to preach full time. Paul now no longer had to split his time between working as a tent. Maker working as a leather worker and and preaching the gospel. Now he could solely preach the gospel for time because this gift that Silas and Timothy brought the Macedonians was so much. But what was here is we sent the response of the Jewish synagogue was blasphemous. And then what we see, we see Paul make this great reaction because you see, Paul shakes out his garments, right? There's no one to say. Uh, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So when Paul shook out his garments, right, which was quite possibly very similar to the shaking off dust of one's feet, which is what Jesus told his disciples to do when he sent them out. to the cities in Judea, and those cities refused to believe in him. He told them, leave the city and shake off the dust of your feet. In other words, John, we went and we did it. Now we've shaken off the dust of our feet. Symbolizing that these people are now on the hook for refusing to believe in Jesus. That's what that symbolizes. So this suggests this argument was particularly bitter. Paul is saying, you made your bed, now you gotta lie in it. Right? And so then, Paul basically says, The, uh, the blood is, uh, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So his pronouncement of their guilt has roots in the Old Testament. So, what are we talking about there? With well, the roots in the Old Testament? So, we're talking about those roots are found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9. Leviticus 20, verse 9. So, here's what that says. Anyone who Verses their father or mother is to be put to death because they have cursed their father and mother, and because they have cursed their father or mother, their blood will be on their own head. It also has roots in Ezekiel thirty-three verses one through six, which says this: The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men, and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land, and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning, and the sword comes, and takes their life their blood will be on their own head since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning their blood will be on their own head if they had heeded the warning they would have saved themselves but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life that person's life will be taken because of their sin But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. So you see, Paul had gone and preached the gospel to these people in this Jewish synagogue, and they blew him off. They did something that so upset Paul to the point that he said, Hey, Your blood is on your own heads. I went and did what God told me to do, and you absolutely positively refused to see the light. So now it's on you for having turned your back on God. It's not on me, because I did what I was supposed to do. So his pronouncement of, uh, of their guilt has roots in the Old Testament and it signifies that he was free from the responsibility for their souls But he had done what God had called him to do, and these people still refused to believe. So now what happens? So Paul leaves the synagogue. He goes from the synagogue to the private home of a man by the name of Titius Justice. Titus Justice. Titus Justice. titius Justice. Because he and his family had become Christians. And so now what do we see? What do we see at the very end of this section? What does it say? It says, the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized." Right, so this, so the conversion of Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, would have been a topic of great, of a great discussion in Corinthian Jewish circles. Why? Why would it have been a big massive topic of discussion? Quite simply, because as the synagogue leader, Crispus was responsible for the spiritual well-being of the members of his synagogue. And now, all of a sudden, you see the man who was in charge of the spiritual well-being of a Jewish synagogue saying that the Messiah has already come. We've done put the Messiah to death, and the Messiah has now raised himself up from the dead. And you better start believing this, too, because, by the way, I'm I'm responsible for your spiritual well-being, so I'm going to teach you this stuff. So that you can come to believe the same thing I believe, that's what it would have been the talk. Because all of a sudden you see a man who normally would not have been a convert become a convert. So now we're going to pick up over in verse 9, we're going to take it through verse 11, which says this. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Teaching them the word of God. Right. So what we're here is we're that Paul had a vision. So we're not talking about a dream, we're not saying that Paul had a dream, because you see, this was distinct from a dream, this wasn't something that happened to Paul while he was asleep, although it happened at night, this was something that happened while Paul was wide awake, while Paul was fully conscious, and he saw another vision of Jesus. He saw Jesus just like he saw Jesus on that road to Damascus all those many years ago. And what happens in his vision is Paul sees the Lord promise him that no one would successfully attack him. Right, and so it's so important about well, this, Paul clearly had enemies who wanted to do him physical harm. But God says, hey look, ain't nobody gonna successfully attack you, Paul. Don't worry about it, don't worry about it, right? Cause their is gonna be futile, cause they're opposing something, they're opposing a person who's been given a mission from the Most High God, and it ain't gonna succeed. That's what's happening here. That's what Paul is seeing in this vision, right? So this purpose was not made merely for Paul's personal safety, but because Paul would be used by the Lord to teach many people. God's not just saying, Paul, you're gonna be personally safe because I... You, you, You need to live? No, 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 he's saying you're gonna be safe, because you have a mission to accomplish, and your mission is to go and preach the word to the Gentiles, and so we see that Paul ends up staying in court for a year and a half, in other words, God's promise to Paul was fulfilled. God came along and said, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I am many people in this city. And Paul went on to stay in Corinth for a year and a half without anything happening to him, which fulfilled God's direct promise to him. So now let's pick up in verse twelve and take it on down to verse seventeen, which says, "This while Galileo was proconsul of Acacia. The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary. To the law, just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the other, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. but since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowds there turned on Sophenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the pro-council. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. He showed no concern whatever. So what is this region that we're talking about here called Acacia, so we already know that was the Roman, prov- the Roman provincial name for the Greek peninsula, we talked about that earlier. So there was a new council that was named this man by the name of Galileo, Galileo not Galileo, Galileo, or Galileo, that we would know about who would make the argument that the sun was the center of the universe, not that Galileo, a different Galileo, right? We know that he was made the pro of Acacia, and it's one of the surest events that we can use to date the ministry of Paul, because we know when Galileo was the pro of Acacia, which ...was the man who was in charge of, Acacia. And so we know that Galileo was the younger brother of the famous orator Seneca. Right? And we know that he had a notable political career. We also know that he arrived in (coughs) Corinth between July and October of A.D. 51. We also can infer from the way this (laughs) passage reads, right, that the installation of this new proconsul, this new Roman ruler, right, gave the Corinthian Jews hope for a favorable ruling against Paul. So the charge they brought against Paul, we see, is again... Purposefully vague regarding what law Paul had broken. Cause they couldn't find a law that he had broken. They was just trying to make something up to shut this dude up. Cause they was tired of hearing him talk. They was tired of hearing him preach. And so they figured with. Well, we couldn't run him off ourselves. we can't run him off ourselves, so we'll get the wrong one is to run him off We'll, we'll work something out like the like the Jews did over in Jerusalem to that crazy man he talking about right because they everybody in the in the whole in that whole region knew what had happened to Jesus. They knew that the Jewish leadership had been able to persuade, to persuade Pilate to execute Jesus for a crime that Jesus never committed. They knew that. Everybody knew that. So they figured, well, we'll do the exact same thing. But, but, right? But Galileo was a whole lot smarter and a whole lot more savvy than Pilate. Because what does Galileo perceive? Perceives this allegation is an internal religious matter, which is exactly what it was. It had no business being decided in a Roman court, it had no business being decided in the way these people wanted it to press, to be decided in. So what does Galileo do, right? So, uh, before before we get into that, so... So, so what were these Jewish, what were these Corinthian Jews trying to do? What they were trying to do was they were trying to legally separate Christianity from the protection that Judaism was given under Roman law. You see, Judaism was protected under Roman law. Christianity was not yet protected under Roman law. Christianity was still an outlaw sect. Judaism was not an outlaw sect. Judaism had the official okay of the Roman government. Christianity did not. Christianity did not. The way did not. So they had to figure that. So what the Jacobin Jews were trying to get Galileo to do. Was to say that Paul was preaching a new religion. They was trying to get, they were trying to get Galileo to make a pronouncement about religion from a secular court. And Galileo said, "No, that ain't gonna happen. No ifs, no ands, or buts about it." What does Galileo do? Galileo rather forcefully and dismissively refused to hear the charges. So what does it say that he did? So, uh, so Paul gets it and he's about ready to speak, for it. So that's in verse 14, which says this. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, If you Jew were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. So he drove them off. In other words, he had his electors drive them out of his... He didn't just tell him to leave, he made him leave. He said, hey, y'all stupid and dumb if you think I'm gonna do a stupid and dumb stunt like this. Now get out of my court. And I'm sure they probably offered up a protest at this point in time, but he wasn't hearing none of it. He had him driven out of the court. And so what happens? It made him so dang mad. Right, it made him so dang mad. Right, that what does it say they he do? The, the last verse in this section says this: It says, then the crowd there turned on, so then, so then, so, then, so then the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Galileo showed no concern what ever. So they beat the synagogue leader, quite possibly their own choice, for replacing Crispus after he had converted to Christianity. Because they were so angry that this Roman man who was gonna make a decision in their life, and they got so angry that they beat another man over it. Right? So in other words, right, this angry crowd turned Synagogue leader, and they beat him right in front of the court. So, as the leader of the synagogue, this man, Sophanabings, was either Christmas' successor or he was Christmas' colleague. We don't know which one because we're not told if Christmas somehow lost his position as synagogue leader. We're not told if, see, all that things was. Christmas's assistant. He may have been, or he may have been his successor. And there's also no direct evidence that connects this man to the same person that we see mentioned over in First Corinthians chapter one, verse one, right? Which says Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothanes. So, we don't know if this is the same man or not. There's no direct evidence that points towards it. There's no, also no direct evidence that ties that fact. Which means that he is very likely the same person. And if that is the case, it means that Paul was two for two in leading the synagogue leadership the faith in Christ. Which means that if the... if the people of that synagogue, the members of that synagogue, had been truly following their leadership, truly trying to emanate what their leadership was doing, then they themselves would have ended up being converted to Christianity. And we know that at some point in time this probably does happen, but it don't happen right now. And that you're gonna pick up tomorrow as we see leave Corinth arrive in Ephesus. And as we see t- uh, as we see events that surround Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. In other words, what we're gonna see. Is we're going to see the end of Paul's second missionary journey and then we're going to see the beginning of Paul's third and final recorded missionary journey and so in order to be prepared For that, here's what you need to read. So you need to read Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15 through chapter 5, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40, Psalm 32, 1 through 11, and Proverbs 21, verses 5 through 7.